All right. Now, does everybody know where we are in terms of the curriculum that we set up for ourselves? No. Does anybody? I don't. Okay. We're on. We're we're on the fourth noble truth, the eightfold path. Okay, and we're on the first part of the eightfold path, which is right understanding. And we've been discussing uh, the five aggregates and self, but we've been discussing them in terms of the mind and consciousness. So we we've been in, in an interesting. It's a non-traditional approach. <laughs> Discussing the, the the nature of mind and consciousness, but it really is all about five aggregates because the five aggregates, you know, what the Buddha said is what you what you are, what an individual is, are these five aggregates. The aggregate of form, which actually means sensations, because that's the only only thing you know about any kind of form, any kind of matter, is through your sense organs, right? So, sensations. Uh, then there are feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There are your perceptions, which are created, generated by your mind to interpret sensations. And then there are all other kinds of mental formations, like emotions and desires and aversions and intentions and, and uh, thoughts and memories and all kinds of other mental formations. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness. And so consciousness is consciousness of sensations, consciousness of feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, consciousness of perceptions, which are generated by the mind to explain sensation, and consciousness of other mental objects which are created by the mind, like emotions and memories and so on and so forth. Ideas, thoughts, concepts. So, we've discussed the mind in terms of consciousness, and really for most of human history, and, and probably uh, even in, in the early part of your life, mind and consciousness were one of the same. There was no Recognition that there was any more anything more to mind than consciousness, and most of human history, most most philosophy, most uh, writings you come across, uh, until you reach a per certain stage in uh, understanding, don't make a distinction between mind and, and consciousness. But most of us do. We recognize that there's a lot more to mind than consciousness. But when the Buddha said that what you are is the five aggregates, sensations, feelings, perceptions, and thoughts and the rest, um, and consciousness, if we look at that, consciousness, he said, what is consciousness? Well, consciousness is, of, uh, he said, consciousness is of, of six types. The five kinds of sensations, according to the five sense organs, and then consciousness of mental objects, which is the feelings and the perceptions and thoughts and so forth. So, inherent in that description of the five aggregates, um, but not obvious, is this whole 
but there's much more to the mind than consciousness. Mental formation, if there's consciousness and there's mental formations, then the mental formations must be something different than consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. If there's consciousness and then there's perceptions, which are a kind of mental formation, you know, car is a mental formation, right? It's a perception. You look at something and say, oh, that's a car. That's a mental formation. So perceptions uh, are something separate from consciousness. Feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that's something separate from consciousness. So what we were talking about last night, time, is that when you examine conscious experience closely, uh, and most especially when you've done the kind of meditative training that allows you to examine your mind much more closely than the average person could ever begin to, you see that this is a very good description. These different kinds of consciousness really are distinct from each other, and there is obviously some really major unconscious process that's responsible for producing the content of every one of these kinds of consciousness. Right? Is that a good summary of where we got to last time? So just when you see something and recognize it, that experience of consciously seeing it and knowing it comes from a lot of things happening in the unconscious. The whole visual image is created by the visual mind. And then uh, another part of your mind, we call it thinking and uh, discriminating mind, takes that image and says, oh, I've seen similar images in the past and, and they have these labels and I have this kind of experience with them. So you recognize what you see. Uh, and so forth with all of the other kinds of consciousness. We also mentioned that the, to say that there's only six kinds of consciousness was very much overly simplistic. It's good for it's good it's good for keeping discussions from being terribly cumbersome. But mental object, an emotion as a mental object, is a very different kind of mental object than uh, a, a concept. Different. Again, very much from, say, uh, uh, an arithmetic uh, process. We can look at mental object and we see that they are very distinct parts. And we realize that there's got to be a different part of our unconscious mind that's responsible for producing emotions as compared to what produces memories or ideas like uh, democracy and meanness and stuff like that. So the unconscious mind has these major parts to it. Now, where it gets interesting is when we start to recognize the relationship between consciousness and all these different unconscious minds that make you up. Remember, we're talking about five aggregates. We're talking about what makes you up. We're talking about what you are. You are all this huge number of unconscious minds each with its own task, its own responsibility, its own things it does, its own kind of role to play in the wholeness of you, and consciousness. So each of these unconscious minds is projecting certain kinds of information into consciousness. So you have, you have consciousness of an idea, and then you have consciousness of a memory that that idea uh, triggers, and then you have consciousness of 
an emotional uh, reaction that's associated with that memory. So consciousness is a place where these different minds are delivering their product. And what makes it consciousness rather than unconscious is that whatever gets projected into consciousness, all the different minds that make you up, all the different unconscious minds have access to that information. So it's how all these different unconscious minds communicate with each other. It's directly analogous to the way that people communicate with each other through speech and body language and hand signals and writing and so on and so forth. So you are you are a community of unconscious minds, and consciousness is the subjective experience of that collective when the different parts communicate with each other. Consciousness is the place, it's like the, the bulletin board that every part of your unconscious can put something into and everything else can see it. Consciousness is the universal recipient of information from all of the different parts of your mind. And that, become, that information, once it's there, becomes universally available to all the different parts of your mind. At least, it's potentially available to all of them, and it will be known by all the parts who uh, bother to pay attention in that particular moment. The content of consciousness is constantly changing. Who is conscious? Who is conscious? All of us. <laughs> all of us and nobody. That is exactly true. There is, there is no... There is no man in the machine. There is no little real me inside here that's watching the screen of consciousness. What's watching the screen of consciousness is all the different sub-minds that make me up. So that's who is conscious. And what are we conscious of? Well, we're conscious of all the different things that the different parts of us happen to throw up there for us to be conscious of. It's really interesting when you think about it. We're only conscious of things that some part of your mind has made. You have never for an instant been conscious of anything other than something your mind has manufactured. Hmm. <laughs> you need to write this down. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, your, your visual mind is taking visual information and processing it and synthesizing it. And the image you see is a product of the visual mind. The, visual, the, the image that all the other minds that make you up see is what has been created by your visual mind from the sensory impulses coming from your eye. It goes in, gets made into an image, and it's put up and everybody says, Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you know, if, if we look at something like uh, warmth or coolness, okay? so there is a part of your mind that processes information coming from, coming from your skin. And what it puts there in consciousness for everything else to see is coolness. 
Is there such a thing as coolness? I mean, most of you know enough chemistry and <coughs> physics to know that there is no such thing as coolness. There is no such thing as warmth. That that all all molecules, all atoms are vibrating, and the faster they vibrate, the higher the mercury goes on the thermometer, and the slower they vibrate, the lower the mercury goes on the thermometer. There's no such thing as warmth. You know that delightful sensation? Warmth. Or coolness, you know, a warm day breeze. Ah, cool. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as warmth and coolness. That's manufactured by your mind. <laughs> or sound. A particular note. Ah, listen to that beautiful sound. But the sound you hear is manufactured by your auditory mind. That's its job. It takes it takes nerve signals from your vibrating eardrum, and from that generates that lovely sound and puts it in consciousness for the rest of the mind to make it up to say, "Oh, isn't that lovely?" Or that's annoying. It's like, it's like I can't hear over that. Whatever they say. As a matter of fact, it's not unusual for you to have mixed reactions to experiences in consciousness, right? Because some parts of you like them and some parts of you don't. Yeah. Everything you, you experience has been manufactured by some part of your mind for the benefit of the other parts of your mind who share it once it's been made conscious. So think of consciousness as being a space where the different parts of you communicate with each other because it's really the only way that they have of communicating with each other. Although we, we did talk, there, there are some other ways that they have, but that's the most important way they have of communicating with each other. Now we need to look at this a little more closely because I said that some Buddhists who did a lot of meditation sometime after the, the time of the Buddha, not only recognize that there's the unconscious mind and there's these six kinds of consciousness, they realize there's actually a seventh kind of consciousness. And this is something that is verified by modern science. That what gets delivered into consciousness moment by moment by these different parts of your mind needs to be assembled in a meaningful way. And so there is another part of your unconscious, let's call it another unconscious mind, whose job is to take this different information, make sense of it, and then it presents it back to consciousness. Right. So, I, I think a really good this this happens in a number of ways. Um, different sensory modalities like seeing and hearing and feeling need to get combined together to give you the kind of experience of the world that you have. And so this is obviously, uh, these are called binding moments of consciousness. So this part, this part of your unconscious takes things that you see and things that you hear and things that you feel and things that you smell and things that you think and 
things that you emote about, and it puts them together in a meaningful way. It gives you the kind of experience that you're familiar with. Um, because we're not, we're not usually experiencing just isolated bits of visual and auditory information. We're experiencing a, a whole world, integrated, a, a whole world of which we're a part. And our thoughts and our emotions are, you know, they come in consciousness. Well, that's, that's this part of your unconscious mind producing these binding moments of consciousness in amongst the others that put it all together and make sense of it. So across different sensory modalities, that's one way it happens. The other way it happens is that's very important is temporally. Even within the same sensory modality, different images need to be put together to make your ongoing visual experience make sense. You know, there's a very interesting thing. Uh, you know what it's like when somebody takes a camera and they jiggle it and they're moving the camera all around? It's really hard to make sense of the images that are there. But if you think about it, that's exactly the way your eyes... That, that's exactly what's happening in terms of your, your eyes and, and, and your mind. There's all these different images. You know, I can look here and here and here. My subjective experience is there's this panorama before me and I'm seeing different parts of it in different modes. But what's really happening is the camera is moving all around and it's jiggling as it does so and everything else. But I don't experience, I don't have the kind of experience you do when somebody does that with a camera. And that's because the same part of my mind is taking all those images and it's filtering them and putting them together in a way that works, that makes sense. That, yeah, I have a panorama before me of all of you beautiful people, and I'm seeing different ones of you in, in different instants and, and in a single second. I, there's all these thousands of different images, and they're being put together in a way that makes sense. Maybe another example is sound. Da 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 da! Recognize that? Four different sounds. Is it four? Not five. Not four. Four thousand. Four different sounds. <laughs> but you recognize it, right? Duh. You recognize that? <laughs> da da. No. Da da da. Maybe almost. <laughs> um, every piece of music. Da 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 da. Right? The pieces get put together. Individually, they don't make any sense. If they're far enough apart, they don't make any sense. If they're interrupted by other things, if my da-da-da-da uh, is intermixed with da-da-da-da-da, you know, like that, alternate note, it won't make sense to you, right? But actually what's happening in consciousness is you have visual consciousness and auditory consciousness and thoughts and emotions kind of all scattered amongst each other. It's a very important thing this part of your mind does, which takes and it puts all the kinds that belong together together so that it makes sense. It's a wonderful thing. Binding moments of consciousness are created by a, a special unconscious process, and that's its whole job. And because of that, we have this wonderful, seamless experience of sensory reality, of thinking about things while we're watching things, of 
listening to somebody like me talk, and at the same time you're thinking your own thoughts and you're making connections. What a wonderful thing you're seeing and hearing too. It's a very important part. We could not do without it. Now, if you think about it, what you'll realize, we, we can call this chunking, this part of your mind, this unconscious part of your mind, is storing this stuff and then chunking it together and then putting it back out to make it a little bit bigger picture that makes more sense. And there's all kinds of different levels of chunking. So the, the, the smallest moments of consciousness get chunked together to put one level of binding moment. But then those, those binding moments can get chunked together to have another moment of consciousness which ties more things together in a bigger way, in a more complete way. And, and this is what's going on. Now, this happens on several levels. And there's kind of a top level of information synthesis that this part of your mind does that becomes the story of you. It becomes, in other words, those moments of consciousness at that higher level each one of those is a little mini-episode in the story of your life. And there's dozens of these in every minute, or even in every second. You experience this continuity in your life. Even sometimes when your mind's going several directions at once, and different things are happening. There's a sense of continuity. That's because of these high-level binding moments of consciousness that are telling the story of you. Because of this, I call that part of your unconscious that puts information together the narrating one. Now, at the, at the lowest level, kind of hard to see, like, da-da-da-da, how the, putting those together is narrating. But you see, as it builds up, it definitely becomes a narration. The narrating mind. And the binding moments of consciousness that involve this higher level of information integration and synthesis are episodes in the story of you. They are, what they really are, is they are episodes in the story of these five aggregates. They are an ongoing description of what's happening in consciousness. But the narrating mind uses a particular concept as the, the, the narrative center of gravity. Or, do you understand that, that narrative center of gravity? That's a lot of nice multi-syllabic words. <laughs> <laughs> but the narrative center of gravity is the hero of the story. Who it's happening to, who is doing it, who feels this way or that way about it? Who decides what to do, right? I, the narrative center of gravity. So this part of your unconscious mind generates as its narrative center of gravity the idea of I. So all these moments, binding moments of consciousness at this higher level are a story that revolves around a symbol, I. Now, an interesting thing happens when all of the other minds that make you up look at those moments of consciousness, they believe that the I is real. 
They don't realize that the I is all of them. They think, oh, this is the story of I. That I, boy, he's quite a fellow. <laughs> or she's quite a gal. Or, you know. <laughs> that I is really something. Ooh. So all those different parts of your mind believe that there's an I. Because the story is about I, right? The story is about me. <laughs> the, the people that came on later recognized this. They said, okay, there's another kind of consciousness. And they called it the self-consciousness. But they made it really clear, that, and, and it's the self-consciousness. I, I call it the, the high-level binding moments that are produced by the narrating mind. But they called it the self or I consciousness. Uh, manas was the, is the Pali and Sanskrit word for that. Mana. But they were talking about the same thing that I'm talking about in more modern terminology. But what they also recognized is that you can't blame the narrating mind and the binding moments of consciousness for the mistake that all the other minds are making. Because the narrating mind is just doing what it's got to do to do its job. It's, it's got to have a central reference for all of these things it's tying together. And so it generates a symbolic entity to serve that function. Right? The central point of reference. The mistake is in all the other minds that believe that it's referring to something separate and real. So that they become... You know, each of them is, is the audience of a story about this hero, I. And that's how we come to be attached, so attached as we are to this notion of I. And so these later Buddhists, they, what they said is that, okay, what we need to do to become, what happens when we become awakened is that that's when all of these, well, actually, when you begin to come awaken, is when enough of these different parts of your mind realize that the eye of the narrative is just a symbol and not a reality. And they describe that as a turning around of, of the minds that make up the unconscious mind. As they turn around, as they turn away from this belief that the I is referring to something separate, and they come to realize that the I is just a symbolic creation of the mind to make sense of the experience of this hunk of matter and this uh, these five aggregates as they negotiate their way through the world. That's the origins of the I. In, in the human mind, and in simpler minds, there is a, a simpler I notion. When you go down far enough and you get to a level where they, they don't have that sophisticated uh, narrating mind, the, the part of their mind that chunks information doesn't do it quite at that level. and They don't have the kind of I that, that, uh, that we do. But us humans, we have, a, we have a really, really strongly developed notion and of course, this is one of the reasons that we're so successful. We're able to assimilate so much information. We create this powerful model of the world because, because our narrating mind is capable of 
taking so much information and assembling it together in a way that really works. And you have to admit, the however many billion people that there are on this planet who believe that they are a separate, real entity that needs to be protected and cared for, um, that's a successful strategy. <laughs> Except that they're not too happy, mostly. <laughs> and they take out their not too happiness on each other, making each other even more not too happy. <laughs> So if you if you start studying more of Buddhist writings, you will come across the description of consciousness of the eight consciousnesses. And so there there are the five sensory consciousnesses. There is the mental consciousness, that's consciousness of feelings, perceptions, and other mental formations. The seventh is the self-consciousness, the mana. And the eighth is the Alaya, that's the unconscious. The alaya is refers to all those unconscious minds, each particular type of which is responsible for a particular kind of consciousness, like the visual mind for for visual consciousness and the thinking mind for thinking consciousness and so forth. Consciousness of mental objects. But this this was a great unraveling of the nature of the mind, a wonderful unraveling that is very useful. And it helps us to understand what the Buddha was trying to point out. What the Buddha said is, if you examine these five aggregates, you will find no self in there. You will find, you look at each one, you, you can't find a self. Uh, you look at any combinations, you can't, you can't find a self. All that you find is the five aggregates. And this was, I guess, the earliest way to try to get us on this path to understanding that the self that we think we are, is a, is a dangerous and painful illusion. So what is the purpose of this mind system? Well, purpose is an interesting word. The mind system is the way it is because that's the way everything in the universe works. Everything in the universe interacts. And that interaction results in little nexuses, nexi, <laughs> little focal points, interactive focal points. Okay. Um, energy of different frequencies interacts, and the result of that interaction are uh, what we call subatomic particles of matter. And subatomic particles interact to form atoms. And atoms interact to form molecules. Each of these things I've just described is one of those nexuses or focal points of interaction. The universe, from its most raw, simple, undefined level, right up to the most complex and sophisticated and beautiful, for that matter, things that you can imagine. All the way from the bottom to the top of that progression consists of 
interactions. Everything's interacting, but there are aggregations of interaction that form these focal points. Atoms, molecules, suns, planets, people, dogs, cats, birds, worms, bacteria, pizzas. <laughs> I mean, what are, these are all things. Your mind, your mind is very good at picking out these focal points of interaction and making them appear as though they're more separate than they really are. Right? You can see that they're not really all. It's just everything's interconnected. But wherever there's a spot of more interconnectedness or more dense interconnections focused around one particular time-space location. The mind focuses in on that, and then it uses its imagination to cut away all of the other connections. It says, oh, there's a separate thing. We've got a world made up of all these separate things. But it's not really what the world is. It's just total interconnectedness. But if we examine any one of these little focal points of interaction, we'll find the same principle being expressed. Shared, I call it shared receptivity. The, the components interact in such a way that they're totally interdependent. It's like the protons and neutrons and electrons of any given atom. They interact in a specific way. They limit each other and also they enable each other. They define each other in a particular way that gives them a stability. So that kind of atom isn't absolutely stable, but relatively stable. You know, I mean, it may lose an electron to something else, but it gets another one that's just the same, that plays the same role in that. So really, the individual electrons and protons and neutrons aren't what's important. What's important is the interaction between them, the shared receptivity. The entire universe is built up in this hierarchy of shared receptivities. You are a bunch of mental processes that are linked together by a shared receptivity. That shared receptivity is consciousness, the universal recipient of information from all of the different unconscious minds that make you up. Consciousness equals shared receptivity. In that sense, Consciousness permeates the universe from the lowest to the highest level. And at each level, there is probably a kind of subjective experience. Collectively in this room, we are all the components of a, a shared receptivity. And we have a collective consciousness. And I see no end in sight for the universe's continued evolution along these lines. I'm sure if we'd been around back when the very first atoms formed, we'd say, wow, isn't that amazing? That must be it. I can't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> now we look at beings with minds like ours and we say, wow, this has got to be it. But it's not. The internet. It's not. It, it keeps on going. Another way, another way to describe shared receptivity other than consciousness is we look, you know, 
we're a really good example of the universe that is organizing itself interactively at a higher level. I mean, we're very, we, we call it being social. We're very social. <laughs> we communicate. We interact. It makes us really powerful. None of you could have generated any of the things that make your life important on your own. Because you're part of a society. So we're a really good example of, of this. And so let's look at cooperation. Working together. Um, caring for each other. Uh, protecting each other. Um, I don't know if you can see where I'm going. If I'm doing a good, I might not be doing a good job, but where I'm trying to go for you is to show you that Shared receptivity and consciousness equals love. What we call love, I'm not talking about romantic love, I'm talking about the more fundamental love yeah, that we experience between human beings and that we can experience, we can say, my dog loves me and I love my horse, and things like that. Um, this thing that we call love is nothing other than shared receptivity happening at a transpersonal level. Consciousness is shared receptivity happening at a personal level. So this whole, this, this shared receptivity out of which the universe is built. When you get up to the level of persons, of complex brains and sided heads like ours, where we describe them as persons, at the personal level, Shared receptivity is consciousness. At the transpersonal level, shared receptivity is love. So, love is everything? Absolutely. Absolutely. If the electrons didn't love the protons, there would be no hydrogen. <laughs> and as long as they keep making love the way they do, there will be lots of hydrogen. <laughs> And they've gotten really good at it. You notice that at that level, they've kind of eliminated all of the obstacles to uh, shared receptivity as well. Right? Uh, we haven't yet. We're working on it. If we survive long enough, hopefully we'll be as successful eventually as electrons and protons are. But what's standing in the way? at the moment, is that all of the sub-minds in your unconscious mistaking the story of you as being about something that's separate. You mean, oh, yeah. No, I, I have a question. When, when you talk about um, shared receptivity, is it also related that so many philosophers think that nothing we think or create or think we invent is new, we just take it? We just receive it. So uh, that is that collective consciousness you're talking about. Is that true? Uh, well, I'm not sure I completely understand what you're saying. There are definitely, from the point of view of time, there are definitely new things constantly. I mean, people are, are, are a new thing. You go back two billion years and there wasn't anything like us around. So there are new things okay. happening. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if you have an idea and you think it's a new idea that you created and, and you own it, 
That's not really true. And this gets us into, into a whole other area that after the bells rung, you know, against the rules to talk about. <laughs> but uh, we are, we're, we're not separate. And this idea, that, that this fact that we're not separate has enormous ramifications. So that one of the very simplest is actually that no one person has a new idea that's really theirs. It really comes from, from everything and everyone. And there are, there are events in the world that verify this. For example, inventions. It, it's amazing how many different people invent the same thing in different parts of the world within days or weeks of each other. You know, and, and this happens over and over again. And then uh, there are other things like there's, uh, I don't know if you, anybody familiar here with the hundredth monkey, the hundredth monkey, based on, I can't remember the details too, some island where they had a couple of populations of macaques, little monkeys, who were there for research purposes, and they fed the monkeys by just tossing the food out on the sand, and then one day one of the monkeys went, Wash the sand off in the surf and got a clean piece of food. And before you knew it, a whole bunch of them around there were copying it and doing it. But when, when a certain number of them, this is where the hundredth monkey think of, when a certain number of them had learned this new trick and no longer had to eat sandy food on this island, at just that moment, the macaques on the other side of the island started doing the same thing. <laughs> you know, so the idea of the hundred, hundredth monkey is a kind of a critical mass when, uh, uh, and the monkey on the other side, the first monkey on the other side that probably probably had no idea that this discovery was rooted in what all those other people, other other monkeys were doing, and the first monkey that figured that out probably had no appreciation at all that he was really drawing on the wisdom that had come from all kinds of other beings who, in one way or another, had discovered that. You could wash the sand off. So, in I don't know if I. But that would speak for the theory that we pick up what's already there mm -hmm. and then it make we make it bigger. So, how is it in in evolution when you said you know we definitely mm -hmm. went ahead, we invented more, we whatever progress we what we call it. Where does this come from? From single mind, or from a collective consciousness too? And then it became a mass factor and, and, and transfer it or transcend into something bigger or to you, the next You level. mentioned, are you asking how things evolve in the material no, universe? I'm not clear. Maybe I ask next week when I'm clearer. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just don't know. I, 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 this is a fascinating theory to me. Yeah. And that helps me actually to go away from the self. Thinking that I'm so unique when I have an idea, whatever. No, I'm just picking it up, so I'm more open, maybe, and that's a wonderful thing. But it has nothing to do with my own only creative, yeah. creative mind. So that helps me actually to to not to believe in the self so much. Well, good, because that's that's where I, that's where I want it to help you go. The thing is that you think of yourself. Okay, there's all these unconscious minds that make me up, and I'm not any one of them. Um, you still might 
have the mistaken notion that all of these unconscious minds that make you up are separate from the unconscious minds that make me up. And Tessa and Jordan are really <laughs> And they're not. They're not. So there must be a selective advantage to, to seeing, to experiencing the world as as separate, as well, opposed to this thing that we're yes, going towards. So yes, they're, they're absolutely <laughs> a, They're absolutely a, The universe is evolving, and it evolves in as a result of a process that we can best understand as, as trial and error. The universe tries every possible thing, and the things that work, work, and the things that don't work, don't work. And it's really that simple. That, that's how evolution happens. Um, I mean, that's what intelligence is. I mean, you say, this intelligent person designed this wonderful thing, or this intelligent person invented such and such. But matter, just doing what it could do, and some of the things it did work, invented the eye. The eye is an amazingly complex thing. Uh, I see. So, so basically, the, the the experience of self as being separate is sort of kinetic um, energy. But eventually, we get the thermodynamic one, which is even more stable than that. Which is that where we're all we all experience life as being connected. That's that's right. Once once the the oneness of the yeah. totality is completely, you know, has reached its perfection. <laughs> that's where that's where it's going. But. What I wanted to say is uh, that the universe is evolving in this particular way. And if we look at the steps it's gone through, in terms of life, the very first really amazing step uh, probably came after molecules, after matter discovered that molecules could replicate themselves, was to encapsulate themselves. So in the primordial ocean, these replicating molecules discovered that they could create a membrane around themselves. That, that, that is the first self, the first membrane. Inside the membrane is self, and outside the membrane is the rest of the world. And that principle worked really well. So over and over again, it has been invoked. And so it works really well for human beings to believe their separate selves. Just like it worked really well for some chunk of the primary primordial ocean to separate itself from the rest of the membrane. And so that's why it is that way. That's not a bad thing or a dirty trick. It's how we got here. My gosh, it worked really well, wonderfully well. But it also, now that we're at the point that we are, we recognize that uh, the to be on the receiving end of that, to be a self in the world, is not too pleasant. It's got a lot of problems associated with it. The other thing is that the evolution of mind, spirit, whatever you want to put it, has reached a point where it can transcend the evolution of matter. And so it may be that we come into the world as aggregates of protein, fat, and carbohydrate that are structured in such a way that we think of ourselves as a self. But the mind that is produced as a result 
can see beyond that and let go of that and liberate itself from being a self in a world of others. You'll notice my last sentence shows you the limitations of language. Interesting thing about the narrating mind and language. Language is structured around the way the narrating mind organizes information. And so we, we end up, no matter how hard we try to describe ourselves and reality in a way that gets beyond the errors and delusions of the past, language itself is always going to bring us back into the problem. Because language is, language is structured on the narrations of the narrating mind, and uh, which is exactly what makes us make the mistake of thinking we're a separate self anyway. Mm-hmm. You probably want to go home. Well, it's it's actually a useful practice to to see if you can avoid using words like I, me, and my, uh, with the intent not being to succeed at that, but the intent being to become really aware of the role that those concepts play in your thinking and the way you construct reality. Anyway, thanks for your patience and staying, and uh, I'll see you next week. We can, we, I think we have lots more to talk about. <laughs>